Right. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every week. This week, we've got Jess and Hugh from the Somex team and Hero Health's Gus Kennedy joining us. Gus, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Good, good. Do you want to introduce yourself to the Pigeon listeners who may or may not know about Hero Health? Uh, absolutely, yes. Hero uh, was founded five years ago, and we are a scheduling product for primary, secondary, and private providers. Uh, we exist really just to automate workload and delight patients. Uh, I use ZocDoc in America and uh, booked an appointment in a few minutes in Washington, D.C. in 2017 and thought that's needed for the U.K. And five years later, I'm not sure I've achieved much of that vision. Um, we're doing something kind of completely different, but it's going well. And I look forward to talking with all of you today. That sounds good. There's nothing wrong with a pivot. Jess, Hugh, how have your weeks been? Yeah, my week has been very good, thank you. I spent my evening last night joining Femtech Labs to meet their new cohort for their accelerator, which was incredibly interesting and some really cool stuff going on. Um, so that was probably my highlight for the week, and now I am ready for the weekend. I, interestingly, on the topic of exciting events of the week, I was at Best Practice, the conference in London for, for largely primary care providers, and it made me think we should all start conferences because they must be pulling it in hand over fist it's sort of <laughs> five to ten thousand pounds for a three by three and then more if you want to be a speaker it was led by sedigin aka vision who had a, a stand that must have cost the same as a sort of small flat in clapham <laughs> it was huge and there we were as hero in a sort of a movers box for five grand on the plus side, finding three by three of space in London for just five grand for a day is actually quite impressive. Well, that's it. I was I was tempted to say, can we stay here overnight and stay on, you know, save on the hotel fees? But uh, no, it was um, it was a good experience. And always interesting to see the the kind of new entrants to the market um, butting heads with the incumbents and and looking at where the football goes. So that was quite that was quite entertaining. All right, so let's move on to our first story this week. Okay, so what is changing in the GP contract for 23-24? Good week to have Gus on this week, I think, uh, given your primary care expertise and what Hero Health do. Who's had a read through the GP contract? Uh, Gus, have you had a little look at it? Um, any thoughts? Well... The NHS and the contractors continue to diversify away from what GPs really want and write with little thought for day-to-day, the day-to-day reality. Um, but I think there are some interesting themes that uh, will have GPs a bit more engaged this time. Certainly, the reduction in, in cloth indicators should um, reduce admin workload, and I think that's, that's good for practices. And then there's a big push on access and making sure that you have some level of same day access, which um, for the likes of the triage providers and scheduling solutions like ours is good. And I think it's good for um, individual patients. You know, no one wants to submit a form on a web page and be told we'll be back in touch with you in the next 48 hours. You want to know with certainty what's going to happen that day. And that's what this contract's pushing towards. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's it's an interesting one. I know that the um, it looks like we may get a GP strike off the back of this because, as you say, this is moving further and further away from what GPs 
want to be doing uh, and closer to what NHS England want them to be doing. I found some of it perplexing. I found some of it quite sensible, as you say, like the instant, not instant access, but the same day access, I think is a really wonderful idea. It'd be interesting to see how that works in practice. I like the idea that um, providers have to move to cloud-based telephony. I think reading that 65% of GP practices, which is I think what I saw on um, one of the websites that I was reading about this, um, 65% of GP practices are still using analog phone systems that don't allow for virtual triage which seems absurd. Um, so I think that's a good idea. Um, I just worry that it's all well and good coming up with these targets, but when we've got so few GPs now working and when we have, I think, something like 30% of the GP workforce planning on retiring in the next three years, that pushing this hard against the way in which GPs think the service should be run could result in A, a strike, and B, more people leaving the workforce. Here's the question. Do we think that patients need to become more comfortable with seeing non-GP specialists? So I'm thinking first contact physio, nurse prescribers, HCAs, pharmacists who can offer some level of clinical advice. Because really that's the way that we're moving with the shortage of GPs is that we need to rely on these wider interdisciplinary teams. But it seems there are a lot of patients out there who are fixated, oh, I must speak to my GP, I must speak to my GP. Completely agree with you. And coming at it from like a patient perspective, I know, so I have a uh, tele-GP. So I, I book an appointment via an app. And the first thing it will ask me is what is it that I'm looking for in terms of the support I need like what's the issue and it will give me a recommendation of the right people to speak to and that could be anything from um, a prescribing pharmacist, a nurse practitioner, a physiotherapist. The list is pretty long um, and so I'm, I'm not always pushed immediately to a GP but I think and I working in healthcare I know and trust that I can choose who the right person is based on my needs and get the result that I want and most often it's I need a repeat prescription or I know the medication I need I've used it before and I just need uh, another prescription being reissued or whatever it is um, but I think it's the education piece that's missing for people who are trying to access that service and I, I don't think enough people realize that they don't need to see a GP um, and I think that that trust has to be built and that understanding around who are the other healthcare professionals that are qualified to give them the right advice and that it's not the, a case of them being fobbed off. It's not a case of them speaking to a NHS 111 service. It is a case of speaking to someone who is qualified to provide you with the right care and support that you need. Um, but I think people are, I, I guess GP um, appointments are seen as a holy grail. People are struggling to get them. Um, but also they're seen as like, they are the people who are going to have the information. And I don't think it's widely understood that everybody else within that kind of healthcare ecosystem as as clinicians, as healthcare professionals can provide them with the care that they need. So I think that there, there's almost, we're missing a trick there um, because it's not just a primary care problem as in the providers. There's a, there's a piece of work that has to be done with patients to get them to the right place. There's, we've had funding for ARS roles since 2019 I think so the funding is there for these people if PCNs can get themselves to a position where those people are employed and logically rostered so that you can get 
you can triage people into them effectively, which is another whole other piece. If we can do that, then absolutely, people need to get used to not seeing GPs. But the big thing, as Jess touched on, is education. And I've, for a few years, thought that in the same way that in the in the 80s and 90s, we had some really great public information films, which tended to be about, like, don't smoke near your curtains or you'll die. Um, there needs to be public a public information push on the fact that receptionists in GP practices are not just receptionists. It's not like ringing the receptionist at your local travel lodge or ringing the receptionist at your hairdressers. They are trained to triage you effectively. But if you go through the comments section of any Daily Mail article about, the, about GPs, you will find umpteen comments about people being like, oh, well, the receptionist was being nosy and she wanted to know my symptoms and X, Y, Z, I'm not telling my symptoms, I'll only speak to a doctor. They're, they're there to do that. That's their role. They're not just reception staff. They are trained to triage you. And I think we need public the public to realise that that's, that's their role and that many times... You know, it is more appropriate for someone to see a pharmacist or an apprentice physician associate or an MSK specialist or whoever it is. But it needs to come from the centre. It needs to come from DHSC to put the funding behind public information and public kind of re-education to ensure that people know that that's what those people are there for. And they're not just being nosy, as the average Daily Mail commenter thinks they are. The counter to that, of course, is when you call up and you're concerned and anxious, you want a highly trained opinion to comfort you. And so if a receptionist says, you know, how severe is the pain? It, it's almost like you're thinking, well, what's it to you? <laughs> if I say, well, it's very severe or do you, do you need to be seen today? Yes, I need to be seen today. It, there's this strange relationship between receptionists and the patients whereby it's almost like a negotiation. If I say the right thing, can I see a GP? Otherwise I'll be sent to a lower trained specialist. And there is truth to an extent in that reality that is kind of what we're talking about um and i'm not really sure how that can be overcome receptionists are trained to a level but should we be using for example nurses to answer the phone some practices do use nurses to answer the phones or some practices are, they'll almost just funnel you into a gp telephone callback um, and this is ultimately because gps are the only individuals in a practice setting who really carry risk the rest of the staff team are following protocols. So I can see why patients in your daily mail comments do want to speak to GP and aren't that comfortable speaking to a receptionist and allowing receptionists to apply a clinical judgment. Um, so it seems, it seems a tricky one to solve for me. Yeah, there's definitely a balance there. Um, and I know my opinion on this is very black and white, but I do believe that if we were to educate people more on not just the reception staff, but on the value of seeing other specialists who are who can be reimbursed through the ARS scheme, that we will see people getting to the treatment they need faster. It only takes a small percentage of the population to realise that, oh, okay, I have actually got the medication or the solution I wanted out of getting in touch with my GP practice. That's another problem, actually. I think calling them GP practices means that everyone just thinks they should be seeing a GP. I think we should probably try and move the language away from that to them being primary care centres. But that's another thing. I think if you can educate people on the fact that you can get the right outcome without seeing your GP and make sure that people are educated. And, you know, you mentioned that fear, that kind of, you, you know, you want to be reassured when you ring up your practice. I think education is a really good way of alleviating that fear is telling people how 
these other specialists can help them and why that's appropriate for them is a big part of it rather than rather than just kind of them feeling like the receptionist is wielding too much power i suppose there probably is also an interesting shift to continue to reinforce the role of pcns or wider groupings in this contract so trying to push care up to up to a, a level where you have practice with 50,000 plus patients or 100,000 plus patients and you can deliver certain services uh, at scale across a network of that size. And I think the contract continues the shift to, to cross-organizational care and probably with good intentions. I think primary care hasn't yet realized scale benefits. Very few PCNs are running a centralized triage service a minority are running services like flu jabs at their PCN or at a federation level, but there's probably more value that can be unlocked uh, over the coming years. And, and this contract is continuing to, to suggest that the strategy is pointing in that direction. There is also an interesting comment about uh, income around declaring locum GPs or GPs with over 156,000 in NHS income and, and a push towards uh, with that, which is sort of amusing at a time where we're struggling to convince more doctors to enter the profession or even stay in it 150,000 is we're almost saying if you earn too much we will shame you which feels feels odd as an incentive yeah it they announced that back in december didn't they it was about 156k they said from this may you're gonna have to declare their income your income if it goes over that i think two things will happen there one that's a terrible idea, which is not, I suppose, a consequence. But what people will do is earn 148 grand and then just stop working. In the same way that we saw with, well, with a lot of consultants last in the last couple of years with the pensions issue, that they, they got to a point where it, it was no longer sensible for them to work because they were paying more out than they were actually earning. We will see people get to a point where they basically stop working for the financial year, which is a ludicrous way of doing things. But it's just, it feels like, just it's playing into the narrative that GPs are all multimillionaires who don't do any work, which is a very popular narrative in certain places, which is ludicrous. Like the appointments have gone up 15, 20% since the start of the pandemic and the number of GPs has dropped. Most GPs are not earning 150K. It just, it looks like bear baiting to me and it doesn't sit well. The average partner pay last year was 140,000. So you say there's not that many over 150. I mean, if it's, evenly distributed, there actually probably are quite a few doctors earning over 156,000. Yeah, the average low salary doctor was around 100 or just under, and the average partner was around 140,000. I think these are published figures. And uh, so there probably are a decent number. It's an interesting one, isn't it? And I think you're right, you know, the average, the average salary of a partner is about 140k. But when that was released last year as a figure, it was also pointed out that was the first I think the first time in 10 years that that was a real terms increase, like above cost of living and above inflation. Like it's been, I'm not saying that £140,000 is not a good salary, but there are lots of people who have trained for far less time than GPs and have far less pressurised jobs who are quite comfortably getting 140k in other industries. I just think, I think as a country, we tend to treat GPs in a really odd, odd way, like who I personally don't care what they earn in the same way that I think MPs should earn more because I think you would attract a higher caliber of person to be an MP. I don't mind if my GP earns 200 grand, 300 grand a year, as long as 
their craft scores are good and the service they're providing is good, that genuinely doesn't bother me. If it's the if they're the right person for the job and they can earn that much money, great, good for them. Yeah, well, I think it's just a really weird thing to have in the guidance. I agree. I don't care how much they earn. Although I think that the current financial model for GPs doesn't necessarily lend itself to the best set of behaviours, because the capitation fee you're paid whether you see a patient one time, ten times, or fifty times. So there's actually an incentive to see the patient as little as possible. I think I wonder whether a fee per service model, and I've had this debate online, and I know there are different opinions on it, but the fee per service model. It, yes, it relies on the doctors choosing uh, to deliver a service appropriately, but it also incentivizes them and rewards them for work. The problem is at the moment, and the reason that the Daily Mail comments are full, is this, this idea that you could effectively hide behind a layer of ASROS providers and, and 175,000 offering one to two days a week of clinical consulting time. And that's why this is a contentious issue. It's because of the payment model. Yeah, uh, very, very true. Um and not something that I think there is A, the political will, or B, the wherewithal to fix at the moment, which leaves me worried for GPs who essentially end up as a political football because they don't choose the model that they work within. They have that prescribed to them. Um, I think it's just, uh, well, I wouldn't want to be a GP right now. I'll put it that way. Let's have a look at the next piece, which comes to us from the King's Fund. Um, this is moving from exclusion to inclusion in digital health and care, uh, which was put together by Pratesh Mystery and Joni Jabal. Um, Hugh, you've had a read through this. What were your thoughts? Yeah, uh, this is a really nice, concise breakdown of the problems with digital um, exclusion and hopefully um, the you know opportunities for inclusion when it comes to helping people access healthcare digitally. Um, and frankly, a lot of the problems are the same as, you know, helping anyone access any digital service regardless of health. But what really stands out is some of the, the kind of figures they're putting on just how hard the um, people who are digitally excluded, people who have the lowest levels of digital capability do find it to engage with um, NHS services, which is, which is disappointing. Um, I, I think it's great in sort of how well it pins down sort of some of the the things that people struggle with most on the uh, on the you know personal side. You know whether it's access to devices, whether it's access to data. You know a lot of people um, in the lowest levels of digital capability that won't have devices. Devices are too expensive. Um, you know data is too expensive. There's you know data poverty is a huge issue when it comes to um, accessing services, and then just in terms of the digital skills. That it requires to access something, even if you've got a device, even if you have the data to use it, it's not, you know, given that you will understand how to use the services or that you will be like, completely au fait with how to do that. So, you know, this uh, report puts some great examples of how different uh, initiatives are to try and fill some of those gaps, try and upskill people, um, and then sort of just looks a bit more about what health services themselves are doing. To design services themselves a bit better to uh, fill some of those gaps, and I think there's some great points to be made just in terms of you know you can't you can't answer digital exclusion as a problem uh, all by yourself. So the initiatives that have done so have often been done in partnerships, and that's where the real success has been. Um, but I think there's also a sort of another point with healthcare, which is obviously the pandemic shoved us into quite a you know digital first way of looking at things to make things easier. 
Um, and now that you know that obviously had some blowback on the people who were potentially most vulnerable. Yeah, as we go forward in you know more digital first health services, are we going to still exclude you know at the uh, even while we're trying to bring in these initiatives? And I think there's going to be a, a big decision for policymakers, um, planners, service service leads in uh, in answering that gap. So first and foremost, my thoughts on this, and I actually reached out to Pratesh to say that this was a really well put together article, like really well structured, just nicely created. So often we read reports, not necessarily from the King's Fund, it has to be said, they are consistently quite good at structuring these things. But often you will read reports and just think this is repeating itself and going through things. I thought one thing that um, stuck out to me was patient education videos. I think this is something that Obviously, because Somex is a comms agency, we're very much into looking at how best to communicate with people. And I do believe that video content can massively help people navigate NHS digital services, um, that being services by the NHS that are digital, not services from NHS digital. Um, I do massive, obviously, everyone learns differently and everyone approaches things differently and the way that you consume and like take on board information is different but i do think that there is a huge gap in the market i suppose um for patient education videos to be more widespread it's nice to see them getting mentioned because i think they're often seen as a bit gimmicky rather than something that could genuinely provide a real difference to patients yeah i think one company that does this really well is cognitant and they are clinician led but they work with lots of different nhs organizations they work with patient advocacy groups they work with patient advocates themselves and also um life sciences companies to really drill down on that patient education piece and so a lot of the work they do is considering for example cultural nuance um and making vid- videos and not even just videos, but the information that they're developing really culturally appropriate and easy to understand for multiple different demographics and really getting really narrow with that um, and considering like language nuance as well, where it's not just a case of translation, like, you know, a, a Google Translate like for like, translating word for word, and truly understanding, you know, intonation and conversation and, and different turn of phrase um, within different languages to make sure that the right message is being communicated and again in the right format in the right way um, and for me it's one of the first times I've actually heard of someone who is genuinely I say someone a company that is genuinely tackling that problem in I guess you could call it a data-driven way but in a way that is working with all of the stakeholders to bring together the needs wants. Um, of all of those groups, but particularly putting patients first and truly understanding them rather than kind of just guessing and talking about being patient-centred or patient-centricity. I hate that word. Um, But genuinely bringing patients in right at the very beginning to say like, you know, what do you want? How do you want it? And I think in in doing so, they have been able to really successfully engage with underrepresented groups to get them information about how services work, for example, as well as how to manage a condition or how to utilise, I don't know, a continuous blood glucose monitor or something like that. Um, And so I think that's really cool, but I just don't think that there's enough of that out there and people who genuinely are able to have that connection with patients to, to build information provide information that that works and i think you know youtube's um health shelf is also a good example of you know 
of that where people are not necessarily going to go straight to the NHS website because it's not providing information in a way that they necessarily want, need, understand. But actually by having accredited providers of that information in a format that they do understand, given that YouTube is also one of the most used search engines, um, I think that all kind of goes some way to, to helping with that accessibility piece for sure. But it'd be nice to see more of it. Definitely. And I mean, I think I'd just sort of add to that, which is the, um, yeah, there's a point there for all um, service designers in healthcare, anyone building a product, anyone building a solution, which is, you know, accessibility and inclusion isn't an afterthought. And it's it's really important to start, you know, doing what you can to engage with patients, engage with people and engage with users while you're actually designing services, um, you know, before you actually get release them so that you know what people's needs are then you, it will make the whole job of communicating and educating patients on how to use them much easier uh, after the fact if you've done the legwork in advance. I always struggle a little bit with articles like this, just because if we're lifting up a quality, there is a risk that we end up pulling the average down. So if our focus is always going to say, any, we, we must build services for the digitally excluded, that number, the digitally excluded, is getting lower and lower every year, as we know. And at some point, you want to focus not on the digitally excluded, you want to focus on those who are digitally enabled. And I, I've been interested in your views as a team. You now, what point is that? So we're talking about 14 million in the country now. I suspect that number will continue to decrease over time who we're needing to build systems around, speaking as a tech provider. So we've got highly um, highly UI-friendly components that we need to use that aren't necessarily optimized for conversion, but are optimized for engagement. Or we we're investing in a cloud telephone framework in primary care, which I find bizarre. It feels such a strange thing to be doing. We're not doing that in really any other sector outside of healthcare. What are your thoughts? I wonder if there's something about the fact that obviously we've got an aging population and we we know that a huge amount of um, NHS budgets is attributed to providing care and support for them. And yes, I think it's declining, but I think the thing the difference between equity and equality is that rather than giving everyone the same, is about giving everyone what they need. And I think that you're right as the number of people who are who don't have those digital skills reduce, then hopefully that repeals back budget. But equally, I think if we consider that not just with an aging population, but people perhaps that live in lower income areas, maybe who don't have access to smartphones or don't have sufficient data to access digital services, we know that that correlates with worse health outcomes. And so actually, is there a much greater impact to be had by providing services for them to bring to bring them up and therefore reduce overall budget? Perhaps, I don't know, um, but that could be one argument for it. I think there's a different definition of, um, I mean, digitally excluded doesn't mean the same thing for uh, every audience as well. Digital exclusion for the elderly is, you know, very different. Uh, it's, you know, the... the, the an old person um, struggling to access services may not have a smartphone, may be unable to learn the skills uh, at this point, and it might be just too past, uh, you know, too outside of cognitive faculties to 
um, to do that. Whereas, you know, you look to kind of the much younger generation and again, digital exclusion, it's, it's, it's a factor, isn't it? It's a, it's, it's an indication and a lot of people who are digitally excluded live with different, different demographics, different markets. So, you know, there could be socioeconomic exclusion. It could be, um, I think Jessica mentioned it earlier, looking at the cultural differences where, uh, where, you know, it could be something like the, uh, gypsy and Roma community who, um, traditionally culturally will struggle to engage with um, the NHS or, or have a mistrust of NHS services um, and I think if how you design those services for the digitally excluded is it's not necessarily how do we bring everyone on it's how do we design services that work for the elderly as well but also work for the different needs of someone say growing up in a no socioeconomic background who has never had a laptop or a tablet and has only had a um, you know a smartphone um, to access um, and, and use the internet and doesn't therefore have the skills they might need to access health services over a laptop or health services in in another a digitally enabled way. So it's 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 very much catering to those differences and and I think I wouldn't say it drags down the average; it brings everyone up. Um, if you can tailor those services. I think I'm normally probably dragging down the average of the digital services that are on offer rather than the actual care levels. Because if you've got digital providers who you've got 70% who are digitally enabled, but we're needing to spend quite a lot of time. And I'm not, I mean, I'm really positing this as a question rather than my position, but you, we, let's say we're catering for the 30% who are not digitally enabled, trying to do more. We were approached this week about doing scheduling for the for a gypsy community um, in the southwest. So, you know, we're focused a lot on how can we cater for that digitally excluded um, category. But it's slightly to the cost of the 70% who we could otherwise be building tech that plugs into their smartwatch, for example. Now, maybe at 70-30, it's right. That we do that but if we get down to say a situation where it's 95 who are digitally included and five percent who are digitally excluded would we at that point say okay it's right focus on the 95 percent and that's you know that is probably the way that we're moving and i, I don't know at, at what point we'd change our, our strategy like we're always going to have to have a strategy for the digitally excluded but it does take quite a lot of focus in nhs tech at the moment yeah there will have to be there will have to be naturally a point at which the focus is flipped where that percentage split lies is is a very very tough question it's also one of the messages that has often been used and, and deployed to justify the kind of rapid digital transformation of services which is you know if we can use this to get efficiency for the 70 percent or hopefully in the future the 95 percent um we can invest a bit more in catering for those who are excluded and catering for those who have additional needs. Let's move on to the next story, which comes to us from labiotech.eu. And this is five female-led biotech startups making waves. Jess, you've had a chance to look through this. I thought the statistic that stuck out to me was that only 34% of executives and 20% of CEOs in biotech are women. And this is a look at five female-led biotech startups who are smashing it, the article says. What were your thoughts on this? Uh, I'm going to start with saying that this article is topped with the fact that it is marking International Women's Day, which was yesterday. 
uh, was it yesterday? Was it Wednesday? No, I'm losing my dates. It was on Wednesday. It is Friday today. You will hear this on Sunday. Um, so International Women's Day. Um, and I think I have a, I don't know if it's controversial, actually. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I think within my social groups, most of the people that I've spoken to feel on the same page, but I, I struggle with International Women's Day this year in particular, um, seeing lots of videos from companies that have just gone around taking videos of their female team members and pushing it out. And then we don't hear anything else for the rest of the year about the great work that these women in the workplace do. Um, and I just find that incredibly frustrating and it just becomes incredibly vacuous just to have this one day where it's so self-congratulatory that we have women that exist in our organisation. And that's not good enough. And I think these statistics really speak to that, that, you know, we know in STEM and in, in biotech that there is a real lack of women coming into that space. And I think these numbers, particularly of that executive level and CEO level, aren't are reflective of the workforce in STEM and in biotech. And it's a real struggle to attract women into that space. But not just that, it's, a, it's about, you know, I guess, educating young girls at a much earlier age that science is cool, science is interesting, and and showing them, you know, the wide variety of different things that they can possibly do with their career. And so I think the answer to addressing some of that really is at that grassroots level. And ultimately, we won't see massive uptick in, in some of these numbers until we have one, two, three generations coming through where it is then more socially acceptable and encouraged and supported to become a woman in STEM. Um, but even talking about women in STEM, it just feels like a label that we talk about. I don't know, it feels uncomfortable to me, but it also does play a role and is important. But I don't want to take away from the fact that this article is really great because it is talking about um, you know, women who are smashing it out, Henry says, in biotech and really setting an example, being those role models that I wish I could have seen as I was growing up. Um, and that I hope other young girls and, you know, anyone really can look up to these women who are doing such fantastic things and really changing the game in biotech and seeing themselves in that and seeing that as a genuine option. Um, and so, yeah, there's five companies, Intergalactic Therapeutics, Biomilk, uh, Clostra Bio, Smart Immune and Upstream Bio. Um, looks like most of them are US-based. There's Smart Immune in Paris, in France. Um, and so I would really like to see greater spread across a greater geographic area, I think. Um, and some real examples of women who do, by the way, exist in biotech and in life sciences that really are doing incredible things. Um, and I think, you know, often because they're not necessarily in those really senior roles, um, they're not always the spokespeople for the organisations doing cool stuff so it'd be nice for them to be able to have a voice and talk about the great work they're doing and role modeling at every level of life sciences of stem rather than just always the senior executives but yeah i as i said i take international women's day with a pinch of salt it is great and it's lovely to see the celebration but it's feeling increasingly superficial, in my opinion. Um, and maybe I'm just being really negative about it. But I think that uh, talk to me about all the amazing things that women do 
and all the changes that we should be making and actually talk to me about what we are doing for the 364 other days of the year. Um, and then maybe we can use International Women's Day to give women the rest that they deserve. Does anyone else? I, I look, I've got three men on this panel, okay, with me. What are your perceptions of, I guess, women women coming into STEM and, I don't know, you're obviously seeing this from a very different vantage point to me as someone who is in this space um, and experiencing some of these things. Um, so how do you feel about it? Something that was quite eye-opening for me was doing some content with two of our clients earlier on this year, Kavanaugh Health and Ori Biotech, looking at the experiences of women in STEM. I know, as you said, problematic terminology, but what was really interesting was one of the most universal things was something that you've just touched on was that growing up and a lot of a lot of the people we spoke to were in a similar age i suppose demographic but that growing up there hadn't been the role models that they would have liked to have seen that they would have been able they could have learned from um and i think that if you look at the statistics now that is starting to change and that is I see that very much as a sort of a, a boulder rolling down a hill, right? It's going to create its own momentum. If you have more people that people can look up to from a younger age, that's going to mean that more people get into those industries. If more people get into the industries, therefore there are more people for the next generation to look up to. As to where I stand on awareness days in general, I'm not a massive fan. I think that you see lots of rainbow washing around pride. You see lots of, as you say, Jess, lots of people posting stuff about International Women's Day just for that one day of the year. I don't think awareness days are necessarily always as beneficial as they could be. And I think that they do lead to this sort of bandwagon jumping. Let's do it for one day, but not care about it the rest of the time thing, which is more damaging than it is helpful, in my opinion. So I agree with everything you said, Jessica, and everything Henry said. Um, so it's you know, singing from the same hymn sheet again. Uh, I, I think on International Women's Day, my timeline was absolutely filled with women who were saying, what's the point when it's it's not changing, um, when it does just seem to be this one day. And that's that's really sad. I think the the success, the, the fame or notoriety, if you will, of the gender pay gap reporting bot on Twitter for its, uh, I don't know if it's second or third year in a row, is just it really puts paid to a lot of this. I think in terms of the, the you know, women coming into STEM careers, I... I We've got this article, and it's in Labiotech, pointing to some of the, you know, the five um, women in biotech who are, you know, women, female-led companies in the biotech space. And I just think how wonderful it would be, and it might be wishful thinking, if this article could be replicated almost entirely in somewhere like BBC or even somewhere on TikTok or something, so that a younger audience that's deciding, you know, what do I actually want to take at A level, for example, or what do I want my choices to be in university, uh, can say, oh, wow, you know, this space is for me. Uh, there are role models to look up to. Uh, and, you know, it could be more examples at other levels, um, uh, you know, the non-CEOs, um, the people who are doing great science work at different levels of the organization could look up to and say, yeah, there's a place for me in that. I really want to do it. There was a, there was a, um, it's, it's just so important to get people at that early stage when they are making those decisions um, and, you know, I think the more we can do that and the more we can do it on the channels that people are reading and, and form those decisions early on, the better. I wish I could recruit more female developers. It would be really useful. It's just so hard 
the pipeline is just not there and we're a small company and it's hard for us to really make a dent in in a pipeline you know it's not like facebook or you know meta who could have a whole program for encouraging female software developers and that could be a pipeline that sucks people from their choices at gcse right the way through and they can invest over a 10-year period but for a small company we can't do that um but i will say that we just it's the same i don't know if the data changed recently but there's certainly computer science at cambridge was something like 85 percent male um, when I last heard about that data, and that then feeds into the kind of the kind of uh, individuals that we're looking to recruit. It's so hard to recruit good female software developers, and if we could, we would. If they were there and they uh, had a good level of capability, we would love to. Um, that's all I can really say on this matter. And that in turn is, I, I had a, a great conversation years ago with a, a brilliant female product manager senior product manager, I think, who was passionate about the fact that because of the shortage of developers and people on that side of the business generally, you end up instinctively making tech for men almost. You're not you're not factoring those things in. However good your product team is and your UX and your UI teams are, you have if you have a development team that is 85, 90% male, you have a problem. But unfortunately the industry is massively male dominated. So yeah, not an easy one. Not one we're going to solve in the remaining 36 seconds of this podcast, it but, seems. But I think we should try. Uh, <laughs> and I think <laughs> I'm going to put an, uh, a hat on from an old role. I, I used to work for Social Mobility Commission, but the lessons can be learned from like a, a, any any trying to improve diversity and equality and, frankly, representation, which is you don't have to be meta. You don't have to spend millions on your um, outreach program. If you can just get to a school and share a few words, show the opportunities that are available, even if it's just bit, you know, brick by brick with this kind of thing, just showing what the opportunities are that are out there um, and trying to do our best to improve representation and improve, you know, the number, improve that pipeline essentially, improve the number of um, girls choosing you know, hard science subjects um, at GCC, at A-level, and then at university, um, or technology subjects on the for the developer side. Just, you know, if we can get out there and really push that message, then, you know, we might not be changing the world, but we could be changing, a, a, you know, a few a few lives at a time and improving it, uh, you know, really slowly. But improvement slow is better than no improvement at all. And some of the best developers study English at university. It's just not... It's not, um, you know, we can we can actually solve this the, the gender diversity problem even without necessarily getting too bogged down in STEM. Um, but no, I, I completely agree with that. Although I would champion the big players in the industry to continue taking a lead on this. Because it's one thing for me to take half a day or a day and go down to a local school or to do that five or ten times a year. It's a different thing for uh, a meta with their millions that they can invest in their social programs to do that. So I, I agree and it's a good challenge, but also the, the more that the big players can lead, the better. Let's finish up there. We are out of time for this week's Pigeon. So that was the Health Tech Pigeon podcast with Gus Kennedy from Hero Health. Gus, do you want to tell us a little bit about what Hero Health are doing at the moment and what the future looks like for you? So Hero is a scheduling platform designed to 
automate your appointment workload as a healthcare provider and to delight your patients in giving them quick access to your appointments. We're quite proud and excited of our what we call intelligent scheduling, which limits access to appointments based on gender or age or your GP registration so that practices or providers can get more comfortable with putting slots online. Uh, historically, that's been a big blocker to online booking. If you're wondering why you can't book online, it's often just because practices want to preserve their slots and hold them for um, those that they filtered or triaged. And so we're trying to introduce a more controlled online booking. Um, we're in 150 sites nationally and uh, just launched our secondary care products, actually. So we're now working in a, in a hospital site on a trial basis. And we have a team of 12 in Oxford. So um, per the conversations we've been having today, any female developers out there, we would be delighted to host you, even if you just want to explore development, if you're considering that. Um, it's certainly a, a big challenge for us is getting the best team together. Excellent stuff. Um, big fan of the stuff that Hero Health are doing. We've had lots of conversations and fun LinkedIn run-ins in the past. So it's been delightful to have you on the podcast. Uh, and I'm sure we will have you back on soon. Jess, Hugh, thank you as ever. That was Health Tech Pigeon. We'll see you all next week. And if you want to check out any of the articles we've talked about and find some of the best jobs and podcasts in health tech, head over to healthtechpigeon.com. Mm-hmm.